Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Jeremy De Silva, the author of First Steps, How Outpriced Walking Made Us Human, Blending History, Science, and Culture, a stunning, a highly engaging evolutionary story exploring how walking into legs allowed humans to become the planet's dominant species. Humans are the only uh, mammals to walk on two rather than four legs, a locomotion known as bipedalism. We strive to be upstanding citizens, honor those who stand tall and proud, and take a stand against injustices. We will follow in each other's footsteps and celebrate a child's beginning to walk. But why and how exactly did we take our first steps? And at what cost? Bipedalism has its drawbacks. Giving birth is more difficult and dangerous. Our running speed is much slower than other animals. And we suffer a variety of ailments from hernias to sinus problems. In first steps, Paleoanthropologist Jeremy De Silva explores uh, how unusual and extraordinary this seemingly ordinary ability is, a 7 million year journey to the very origins of the human lineage. First Steps shows how upright walking was a gateway to many of the other attributes that make us human, from our technological abilities, our thirst for exploration, our use of language may have laid the foundations for our species, traits of compassion, empathy, and altruism. Moving from developmental psychology labs to ancient fossil sites throughout Africa and Eurasia, the silver brings uh, to life our adventure walking on two legs. Delving deeply into the story of our, of our past, the new discoveries, rewriting our understanding of human evolution, her steps examines how walking upright helped us rise above all over species, all other species on this planet. Well, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So as we're living through these unprecedented times, I'd like to ask, uh, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? It's ah, a, a great question. Um, I live in Vermont. Uh, we've been very fortunate to not uh, be impacted um, too severely uh, by the pandemic. My kids still can go to in-person school. Uh, We've been so grateful to the community and the teachers uh, because teaching from home, uh, uh, homeschooling our kids, which we did uh, at the start of the pandemic in the spring, uh, made balancing work and um, homeschooling impossible. <laughs> it was very, mm-hmm. very difficult. And so I really feel for my colleagues <clears throat> who are homeschooling their children right now. We've been, we've been so fortunate here in Vermont. Um, but it's, it's impacted uh, my research in a number of ways. Um, I've, I've turned to more local projects. And so we have a paper coming out this week on uh, the redating, the carbon dating of a mammoth fossil that was found in Vermont in 1848. Um, I didn't think I'd be, yeah, I didn't think I'd be interested or doing work on mammoths, uh, on woolly mammoths, but, but sure enough, that's what a pandemic will do. It forces you to be a little more nimble and to, 
and to do uh, local projects. Um, but what's happening with human evolution that I think is quite interesting is that um, folks that have projects uh, where there are collaborators uh, in Africa, mostly Eastern Africa and Southern Africa, where I work, um, if we have partners uh, there that continue to do the work, we can we can still uh, describe uh, fossils that are being excavated. That's happening uh, with a new site in South Africa, for instance, uh, that my colleague Lee Berger is uh, is is excavating. Um, and so, in some ways, um, it's helping decolonize our science. Where if you are a an American scientist uh, who just swoops into one of these countries and does your work uh, and finds fossils without having strong partners, uh, 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 colleagues that are scientists in those countries, um, then your work is not really possible anymore. Um, and so, you know, that that to me is is a silver lining um, because the decolonization of our science has been uh, has been something that's been sorely needed uh, for a long time. Well, I suppose if somebody asks you, what have you been doing during the pandemic? Oh, well, I baked some sourdough bread, carbon dated mammoths, and decolonized uh, science. <laughs> oh, dear. Whoa, whoa. There, well, I, I mean, my colleagues are way ahead of me on that one. Um, uh, but but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there, there, have been, there have been moments of productivity and, and, and moments, plenty of moments of despair um, uh, as well. Um, but yeah, the carbonating of the mammoth has been uh, has certainly has certainly been fun. So, can you perhaps uh, tell us how you coped with some of these moments of despair? Um, I, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've got an incredibly wonderful and supportive wife, um, and my two kids have just been an, an amazing joy. I've ten-year-old uh, twins, and they have this seemingly unending optimism and hope about about the world um and they're so flexible they they've just been um yeah I, I, you know seeing the world through their eyes has helped um during during these times uh and and it has honestly given given me quite a bit of hope uh in 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 the future my students as well not just my children but my students i've continued to teach um remotely at Dartmouth College. Uh, we haven't mm. been doing too much in-person teaching, so I've been teaching remotely. And um, I am just constantly uh, awed by my students and what they know, how they think, the way they can turn information into knowledge, um, and just their passion for making necessary changes in the world in the world um I, i'm looking forward to when they are our leaders oh that's so refreshing to hear from the mentor <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they uh, oh. this generation this uh, yeah i think it's a remarkable generation that is is coming up right now okay so can you tell us a bit more about your background Sure, sure. So um, I, I grew up in in Massachusetts, uh, in in New England, which is where I teach now. So I'm I'm sort of still home, um, and I've always been interested in science. As a kid, I was I loved science. It was always my favorite subject, um, but I never quite knew what I wanted to do, um, which I tell my students now is totally okay. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I I dabbled in college with astrophysics. 
Um, but then the math really crushed me once we got to advanced uh, math that didn't even have numbers anymore. It was just letters and exponents. Um, I really struggled with that. And I ended up graduating with a degree in physiology, animal physiology. And I thought maybe I wanted to be a vet. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I got a job at the Boston Museum of Science um, as, a, as, a, as an educator. And um, I fell in love with science all over again. Um, it wasn't about what we knew. It was about what we didn't know and how we could, how we could find things out. Um, you know, it wasn't about getting the answers right on an exam anymore, the, the way I sort of had mm. that experience in college. It was really about the questions you ask and the way you wonder about your world. You know, why is it this way? And how, how do we know the things we claim to know uh, about the world? Um, and I, uh, so I taught there for, for several years. Um, and my, uh, the way I got into human evolution uh, was we had a, uh, a small exhibit on these very famous footprints uh, from a site in Tanzania called Laetoli. And the footprints were positioned uh, close enough to our dinosaur exhibit that it was, to me, a little um, uh, unsettling that we could be spreading misconceptions about you know, those, those, those toy packs that have dinosaurs and ancient humans and, and, and mammoths in the same, in the same bundle. Right. And they just call them, mm. you know, ancient animals. And it's no, 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 These things didn't live at the same time. There has been such an extraordinary, uh, a time scale, geological time scale of, of, of earth, um, that, that, you know, these different creatures lived at different times. So let's not spread that misconception. Let's, let's move these prints into our human evolution and human biology exhibit. Um, and I talked to my uh, boss, uh, Lucy Kirshner, and she said, okay, that's great, um, but I want you to learn everything you can about human evolution before we do this. And I went to our museum library and I read some books by Ian Tattersall, who's the uh, curator at the American Museum of Natural History. Uh, in New York. And I got hooked. I got absolutely mm -hmm. pulled into this world of ancient human fossils and the stories that they tell us, the, the, you know, the evidence that you can pull from these fossils tell us not only about these broad themes of how evolution unfolded, but each one of these fossils was an individual, somebody that, was, that, that, that lived and breathed and ate and talked and laughed and cried and and had this had had a life and from their bones that they left us um not willingly of course but uh the, you know mm. through through the, the these incredible circumstances of fossilization we're so lucky to have these fossils and they tell us these amazing stories about our ancestors both both large scale and also these individual stories, I was hooked. Oh God, I, I just, this, I'd found my passion. Um, and I, I left the museum and I went, I started graduate school um, with Laura McClatchy, first at Boston University and then at the University of Michigan, um, which was, which was where I, I ended up uh, focusing on locomotion and how our ancestors moved uh, in terms of their climbing ability. But also uh, I, I ended up, um, getting quite interested in the evolution of, of upright walking, which is what my, my book is about. So a part of your uh, unbridled curiosity for science, have you always been passionate about teaching and science communication as you do very well in this book? 
Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Um, no, um, I, I, <laughs> I really didn't. Um, I, 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 you know, in, in college, at least, um, that was not something I thought too much about. Um, I did write. I had a, a, a column um, in our newspaper, our college newspaper, my, my junior and senior year, and it was always about science. And it was always about, about sort of, you know, science literacy. And a lot of that was inspired by, by one of my favorite science authors and science communicators, and that was Carl Sagan, um, who was a professor at Cornell uh, when I, when I was there and he, he died my junior year. Uh, but I had an opportunity to hear him speak and he was uh, a guest lecturer or, or, or an attendee, I should say, uh, for a couple of classes that I, that I took when I was an astrophysics major. And wow. he was so inspirational, um, and modeled scientific discourse so beautifully of, um, you know, he, he defined science as a marriage of skepticism and wonder. And I've always loved that, 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 um, you can, you know, with a new discovery, I always see it as, um, wow, that's amazing. And there's the, there's the wonder part. And then it has to be followed by, but how do we know that? Where's the evidence? And there's the skepticism. And if you, mm. if you go too far to either side, then, then you really lose the, the spirit of science. Um, it has to walk that fine line between skepticism and, and wonder, um, but no, I don't think I was a good science communicator in, until I went to the Museum of Science. And at the museum, there are dedicated educators, and there are dedicated educators in science museums all over the world um, who really understand how to teach people science. They understand uh, w what the what the um, the strategies should be. They understand uh, what the barriers sometimes are to to people's understandings. Um, you know, I had some amazing mentors at the Museum of Science that, you know, would, would be teaching a four-year-old one moment and then turn to their grandparent the next. And, and without even seemingly, you know, a, a shift in their sentence, they're educating both. Um, and to me, that was just magical. And I learned so much from my mentors at the Museum of Science. Um, and, and a lot of that I've, I've, tried to carry over into into what i do now um but it's hard because as a scientist you don't write that way anymore you're taught to write in a different uh kind of kind of way um and teaching in a classroom is not the same as teaching in a hands-on museum experience um and so uh it's it's been honestly writing this book um i had to tap into you know that museum world that i once um that I once was, a, you know, that was a, a part of my daily life, and to remember and recall how it was that I had these conversations uh, with visitors to to find my voice again, um, to make sure that this book would be accessible um, to the general public. Um, I didn't write this book for my colleagues. This is a book for, um, you know, for 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 the general public. Well, that's a great example of transferable skills. Yeah. So, how come did you? Uh, how did you come to writing this book? So um, that's a great question. I um, I love to read, and one of my favorite authors, um, who actually lives close to to where I teach in New Hampshire, is Mary Roach. And Mary Roach mm. has written these absolutely beautiful books on seemingly ordinary things. Um, books about eating. She has one, one called Gulp on on the digestive system. Um, she has one 
um, called stiff on on what happens after we die, and, that, and that's of course not an ordinary thing, but it's just you know it, it's something that is is I, just not something I think we as a as a society think about very often. And uh, she's got one called bonk on on sex, uh, which I suppose is probably something people do think about more than more than the others. But um, but I was I was so um, fascinated by what I was learning about upright walking and the evolution of upright walking, and just how un- how odd it is that humans move on two legs um, as a mammal. If we look around our world, we see mammals that mostly move around on all fours. Think about your dog or cat, squirrels, horses, cows, goats, you know, pigs, they're moving on all fours. Um, there are mammals that fly, uh, bats. There are mammals that swim, like dolphins. Uh, mammals can can swing through the trees like a, like a gibbon. Um, but most mammals just move on all fours. There's no other mammal that does what we do. And when they do, when a mammal does move on two legs, we lose our minds. We, we take out our cameras, we videotape them moving on two legs, we post it to YouTube, and there are millions of hits, right? It becomes an internet sensation. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a gorilla named Lewis in the Philadelphia Zoo who was videotaped walking on two legs. And it was on the NBC Nightly News that this gorilla was, was moving on two legs. And so there, there's something here, right? It's so strange that we walk on two legs, and yet it's so ordinary. It, it's so pedestrian, right? Even that word, pedestrian, mm. um, mean, means ordinary. And so I saw an opportun- opportunity to write a book about how actually it's amazing. It's a really, really amazing thing with an incredible evolutionary story that not only informs how we got to be the way we are today. I think upright walking, as I can go into, set the stage for many of the uh, other uh, evolutionary um, uh, changes that happened over the course of our lineage. Um, but it continues to impact us today um, in, in how we um, give birth to our children, in how we parent them, uh, in how we handle injuries, um, and just how vulnerable uh, we are uh, to falls and into into musculoskeletal injuries um, as a result of this of this form of locomotion. Um, and so I, you know, to get sort of into the nitty gritty of this, um, I was contacted when I was at Boston University. I was a, a professor there, and I was contacted by um, uh, Esmond um, Harmsworth, who's an ang- agent at uh, Avitas. And he asked me, he had seen a write-up on some of my work on some South African fossils in which we reconstructed in detail how these two million-year-old ancestors of ours walked um, and, and sort of brought them back to life and, and, and got them walking again. And he, he asked if I, I was interested in writing a book. And I said, yes, but not until I have tenure. And so um, it wasn't until I went to Dartmouth and, uh, and got tenure uh, that I that I then contacted him again and said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to write this book. Excellent. Okay, so let's dive into a bit of a science then. Mm-hmm. And can you describe how come human locomotion is so unique? And in terms that you already mentioned, uh, so how does it differ from ape or even bears sometimes are seen on two sure. uh, legs? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when when any other animal, when any other mammal, I should say, because uh, bird, birds are bipedal, birds can walk on two legs quite easily. Um, mm. and, and in part, it's because they, they evolved from bipedal dinosaurs. So if you think about T-Rex running around on two legs or Velociraptor, um, that, that, you know, humans being bipedal is not, is not unique uh, to all of life on Earth. We see this in, in, mammal, uh, in, in birds and in their predecessors. Um, but it's among mammals uh, that, it's, that it's unusual. Um, and you're right that, that if you're going to see bipedalism in another mammal, uh, typically in terms of locomotion, you see it posturally, uh, like a, a prairie dog or a meerkat will stand up on two legs to, to look at, at, at the horizon and, and peer over great distances. Um, but in terms of locomotion, actually getting from point A to point B, um, the animals that typically do it the most are primates. So monkeys and, and apes, although you're right that bears will occasionally move on two legs as well. But when they do it, it's a very energetically inefficient way to move. They'll wobble mm-hmm. from side to side. Usually their knees and their hips are bent. And I'll, I'll you know, recommend to your listeners, if you want to know how energetically inefficient it is to move that way, um, bend your knees, bend your hips, uh, like the famous uh, Groucho Marx actor that used to walk around with that crouched gait. Um, try that. And, and walk around. And it won't be long before your, your quads um, are absolutely burning. Uh, oh, because yeah, they're yeah, using all this. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I would really recommend our listeners to try. So, yeah, it's a great experiment. <laughs> right. So, so, so that's a bad, that's, you know, evolutionarily, that, that's not something that's going to be beneficial. <laughs> that's not something that's going to succeed. Um, and so what, uh, what we see over the course of, of human evolution, and we see it quite early on, actually, uh, are anatomical adaptations in our ancestors um, that uh, uh, allowed them to not tip over when they were walking. Some of those changes happened at the hip joint with, with, with modifications to the pelvis. And so when they stood on a single leg, they didn't just fall over to the other leg as chimpanzees do when they wobble back and forth on two legs. And we can see that in uh, fossil pelvises uh, that are the oldest one we have is about four and a half million years old that already has that modification that would support uh, what is called an artipithecus, uh, artipithecus ramidus on a single leg when it was walking on two. Um, and then we, we have evidence that the knee joint and even inferences from footprints uh, that our early ancestors, again, were not crouched over uh, like that, that evolution imagery would have you think, you know, the chimpanzee slowly turning into the human uh, that you see on bumper stickers and T-shirts and coffee cups. Um, there's a lot of evidence that we probably didn't go through uh, a stage where we were bent over, bent knee, bent hipped because of how energetically exhausting it is. And instead, our ancestors would have been more upright uh, quite early on uh, mm. from, from, from the get-go. Um, we have a lot of fossils still to find to really um, nail that down. Uh, but, but for now, it, it looks to me, at least from the evidence that we have, uh, that, that uprightness, um, extended knee, extended hip uh, posture in locomotion is deeply rooted in our ancestry. And that's one of the really fun things I think about the fossil record is that um, what we've learned through genetics, what we've learned through, through 
uh, molecular anthropology is that humans are very closely related to the African great apes. And in particular, we are the sister taxa. We are the, the first cousins of chimpanzees and bonobos. And we can tell by examining the differences in, in DNA that we share a common ancestor with chimpanzees uh, uh, and, and bonobos that lived about 6 million years ago. Now, this often will lead folks to think that we therefore evolved from chimpanzees, and we didn't. Uh, we share a common ancestor with them, and that common ancestor was a more generalized ape uh, from which chimpanzees and humans independently uh, diverged. So when we look at the fossil record, if we go back that far and say, okay, well, what's there? What do we have uh, that's four, five, six, seven million years old that gives us some insight into what this animal looked like and what it was doing? Um, we don't have much. <laughs> the fossils are so yeah. rare from that time period. Uh, there's a skull from the Central African country of Chad. There's a femur from Kenya. And there is a toe bone from Ethiopia. Uh, that, that, and those are all north of, of 5 million years old. So they're between 5 and, and 7 million. And all of them show hints of upright walking. And so when we, when we compare ourselves to chimpanzees, there are all these ways that humans are different from our ape cousins. We have bigger brains. We're more technologically reliant. We have smaller canine teeth. Um, we have less body hair. We have language, we have culture, um, and it can go on and on and on. And if you, if you then look at the fossils to try to figure out, okay, well, what came first? What were the initial changes that really set us off on this unique path? What we find is, is bipedalism. It's upright locomotion. And there's even evidence, if you go back even farther than that, to fossils that are 9, 10, 11 million years old. And these are mostly found in Southern Europe. Um, there's some evidence that those apes, those ancient apes, were more bipedal were more upright than a modern chimpanzee is. And so again, we think of humans as being often, you know, there are misconceptions that we think of humans as more evolved than our, our ape cousins, but it could very well be that the body from which we evolved bipedalism was already quite upright. And that knuckle walking in chimpanzees and bonobos and in gorillas is a more derived, more recent form of locomotion. This is a hot topic in our field right now. It's, it's debated quite a bit. Um, the field is pretty split on this. And we're going to need more fossils to really figure out uh, if, if which of these hypotheses is correct. Um, but it is possible. And I think the evidence right now is consistent with the idea that knuckle walking is actually derived. It's the new form of locomotion from something that was not bipedal on the ground like us. That's not what I'm saying, but something that was a little more upright and maybe moving bipedally uh, in the trees. Interesting. So I have two questions relating to what you mentioned, uh, that um, being upright it requires quite a lot of balance. So one first question is about kangaroos. So they are yeah. they are technically bipedal, but... Yeah. Uh, they use their tail for locomotion or that's right that's right so so they they're absolutely bipedal um mm. and but they're not striding bipeds 
like like we are. And so that's an important ah. qualifier that I should have mentioned at the beginning because I kept saying that humans are the only bipedal mammals. And you're right that that's <laughs> there are there are hopping bipeds um, like the kangaroo, and they are they are magnificently adapted for for hopping locomotion. They can move 40 miles an hour. They've got these long tendons, these giant feet that store elastic energy and propel them uh, as they're, they're traveling in this energetically efficient kind of way. But one of the amazing things that I bumped into as I was researching this book, and I write about in, in one of my chapters, is that um, there are fossil kangaroos uh, that are um, enormous. These were these were very very large, uh, uh, you know, seven eight foot tall kangaroos that lived in Australia. Obviously, don't anymore. But we find their fossils, and the fossils themselves are inconsistent with the living kangaroos and their bodies that allow them to hop. And uh, Christine Janis, who's a paleontologist, used to be, uh, she did her work at Brown University in Providence. She made the argument that the skeletons were consistent with these kangaroos actually walking on two legs, walking oh, wow. bipedally. Can you imagine, right, going to Australia and seeing a standing, striding, walking kangaroo? And, and that's exactly what people would have seen when they first got to Australia, when humans uh, first arrived in Australia, we have archaeological evidence of that going back about 65,000 years now. Uh, they would have seen, yes, the hopping kangaroos, but there were um, other uh, giant kangaroos that would have been walking on two legs. They obviously don't exist anymore. Um, and one of the great things about science, of course, is that you can have a hypothesis like like Christine Janice's hypothesis that these kangaroos walked on two legs. Um, and then you can test it with, with complementary evidence. And sure enough, just last year, there was the discovery of footprints in uh, Australia, kangaroo footprints, and they indeed show a bipedal gait. They show a, a not a hopping gait, but a striding, walking gait. Uh, and so uh, now we have independent evidence uh, that kangaroos, um, at least one branch of the kangaroo family, uh, experimented with striding bipedalism, uh, but then but then went went extinct because they're obviously not here anymore. And that's something that you know that seems to be a consistent pattern throughout uh, evolutionary history is that is that some of the early bipedal reptiles, many of the bipedal dinosaurs, bipedal kangaroos, uh, the large ground sloths that we think occasionally could move on two legs. And most human ancestors, except for us, um, went extinct. That bipedalism seems to be a form of locomotion that just can't quite get its grip on uh, on, on surviving and and persisting, mm -hmm. and and it's just it's just a a, a story of extinction um, until us. And here we are, um, not only not extinct. Uh, but now eight billion strong, and inflicting extinction on on much of of of, of the rest of the, of the living world. Oh, that's fascinating! It's really humbling to know that something else already figured it out and then decided not to use it. 
Yeah, right. Oh, oh, and my favorite example, if I if I could, uh, is um, mm. there was uh, a fossil discovered. This is a a a, 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 a Triassic fossil, uh, about 230 million years old, discovered in North Carolina uh, uh, by Lindsay Zano, who's a paleontologist at North Carolina State. And this is a crocodile, um, an ancient crocodile. And 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 I I went to North Carolina and met. Uh, Dr. Zano and, and looked at this fossil and the skull, you can tell this is a crocodile or a crocodile skull or crocodilian, I should say. Um, and yet uh, it moved on two legs. And so we think about alligators and crocodiles, people often refer to them as living fossils as, as though they've, they, you know, didn't change since the time of the dinosaurs. Um, and they have a lot of their ancestors actually were sprinting around on two legs not lumbering about on all fours like the modern crocodile does. And so again, here's an example of bipedal locomotion, not cutting it. And those individuals being more quadrupedal, surviving, preferentially surviving over the ones that were bipedal. Uh, With crocodiles, maybe it was because they could um, engage in stealth hunting a little bit more easily. Um, It's not clear. It's not clear, but um, what is clear to me is that um, the the advantages of bipedalism are not self-evident. <clears throat> that there are lots of organisms that were bipedal when extinct, and even in humans, there are so many disadvantages of being bipedal. We can talk about the the advantages too, and I think we should. But um, bipedal locomotion makes humans one of the slowest mammals on the planet. We are, we are exceptionally slow. Even the fastest human being who's ever existed as far as, far as we know, Usain Bolt, um, the fastest he ever ran in his world record 100 meter race was 28 miles an hour. And that is half the speed, half the speed of a galloping zebra or antelope, or more importantly, lion or leopard, that, that mm. we, we could not outrun a predator. Um, nor could we have ever outrun the things that would have eaten us. Uh, we we could also outrun our friend. Well, I'm sorry. We could outrun our friend. <laughs> yeah, I, su- I suppose that's a, that's a good point. Um, but you know, as you start losing friends, eventually it's just you. Um, and so I, I you know, that's this, a good point too. <laughs> <laughs> so this this presents this real dilemma of how could a locomotion evolve. That is that is going to be disadvantaged dis, disadvantageous to your survival, um, making us incredibly slow and, and unstable. When when humans fall very often, um, there there are about twenty five thousand Americans who die every year in a fall. Um, we we are we are unstable on our two legs, and and then on top of that, we are particularly vulnerable when we are injured. So, you know, when I when I travel to Africa for my for my research, um, we often will see zebras and see other animals, and and uh, you know, even out my window, I see deer very often that are that are limping, um, and so injuries can be handled by quadrupedal animals more easily uh, because they have three legs that they can walk on, even if one is injured, they still have three. Well, if I badly injure one of my legs, um, what good is a uniped, what good is walking on one leg? Uh, 
in, in, in an environment full of predators, which is what our ancestors would have, would have faced. And yet we're here. And so obviously the advantages must have outweighed the disadvantages. But I think those disadvantages um, are, are particularly telling and important as we begin to, to round out this story of, of how did this form of locomotion um, persist? And, 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 and why, are we, why are we still here? How did we make it through um, the, the, the intense um, uh, pressures of natural selection? Interesting. So I was wondering whether it's uh, known or been investigated, uh, whether the emergence and also the persistence of uh, you know, bipedalism coincided with the changes in the human brain circuitry and mm. also expansion of certain uh, cell types. Oh, that's, an, that's a fabulous question. Um, so what we can tell from the fossil record is that bipedal locomotion long precedes brain enlargement. Um, mm. and, and, and that's, that's, that's just in, in, by volume. Um, uh, we don't have a good way to measure, you know, neuron density or anything like that, uh, because all we're left with are the, are the hard tissues, just the skull. And sometimes the skull fills up with sediment and hardens in a way that you get an impression of, of the brain. So you can see the different, um, lobes and fissures and, and even impressions of, of you know some of the arteries um, and uh, on the inside of the skull sometimes there are impressions uh, for the 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 flow of blood for instance uh, through um, through you know draining the the, the brain um, and some researchers Dean Falk for instance has hypothesized something called the radiator hypothesis that important changes in how we cooled our brain uh, would have been necessary. In order to um, uh, in, in order to sort of free us from from uh, these these evolutionary shackles and allow uh, for brain expansion, um, mm. but how that relates to bipedalism um, is is a little more unclear. One of the things that we do see in the fossil record is that um, once with uh, a group we call Australopithecus. Um, the earliest fossils that we find are from different genera uh, that I sometimes cluster together in what's called Artipithecus. These were um, the first bipeds, the first um, ancestors of ours that could move on two legs, uh, but they also were very comfortable in the trees. Um, the best skeleton that we have from Ethiopia, uh, known as Arti, has a grasping big toe, long arms, long curved fingers, and was clearly comfortable in, in the trees, but there's no evidence of knuckle walking in her hands or wrists. And so when she came to the ground, um, based on what we can tell from her pelvis and from the outside of her foot, she was able to push off the ground uh, with her foot, um, uh, using it as a, as a kind of a, a, a stiff, rigid lever um, like we have. Uh, and that allowed her to move on, on, on two legs and it was good enough. Um, and we, that, that kind of ape, what we can tell from the fossils right now is that's the, the kind of ancient ancestor we had from about four to seven million years ago. Um, they had brains around the size of a chimpanzee's brain. But around four million years ago, we begin to get a new genus uh, called Australopithecus. And Australopithecus, uh, for your listeners, the most famous Australopithecus is Lucy, the skeleton mm. Lucy. 
uh, discovered in Ethiopia. She's an Australopithecus afarensis. But now we have a whole bunch of different kinds of them. Um, there are upwards of 10 different species of Australopithecus from Central Africa, Eastern Africa, Southern Africa uh, that have been named. And the evidence that we can tell from the fossils, and one of the great surprises that I've um, been a part of in the last couple of years, is that uh, different Australopithecus species walked in different ways. They actually had um, different mechanics of, 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 of walking. There wasn't a one-size-fits-all mode of, of locomotion. And with Australopithecus, what we see um, is uh, committed terrestrial bipedalism, where sure, they retain some features for getting up into a tree, and they almost certainly went up into the trees at night to avoid getting picked off by, by predators. They didn't have controlled fire yet um, or any structures or anything to, to avoid being eaten at night. So their options are pretty limited, and going up into a tree seems pretty, pretty obvious to me. But during the day... Um, they were they spent most of their time on the ground and um, foraged. And because of that, um, and because they're predators and because they're not fast, because they're bipedal, um, what we see is evidence for dietary expansion. Uh, early human ancestors specialized on what we would call C3 resources. These are resources you can get mostly from wooded, forested environments. Uh, so think, you know, ripe fruit. Uh, like chimpanzees and what they eat. But with um, Australopithecus afarensis, Lucy species, and, and then carrying on uh, right to today, uh, what we see is dietary breath. Humans around the world eat everything, right? <laughs> if it has DNA mm -hmm. in it, we've, we've tried it. We are not picky eaters as a species. As individuals, sure, but as a species, we are not picky eaters at all. So where did that dietary breath come from? And I think it comes from being a bipedal um, species on a landscape full of predators, um, navigating that landscape in a safe way, uh, and making and, and making sure that 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 you know you're not so picky that you eventually bump into the to to the leopard hiding in the grass. No, you go out onto your onto your landscape once the big cats go to sleep. So in the heat of the day, you go out onto your landscape and you eat everything you can. Um, whether it's grasses or fruit or tubers or, or meat that you have to scrape off a, a, a kill from the night before, insects, uh, you name it. And our ancestors were, were probably uh, eating it. Now, the interesting thing about, and I'm eventually getting to your brain question. The interesting thing about, about bipedal locomotion is one of the interesting things and one of the advantages to it is just how energetically efficient it is. We are mm. unbelievably energetically efficient. So we're slow. We're crazy slow. But moving from point A to point B, we use very little fuel by moving on two legs. And the best way to, to, to wrap your head around this is if you wanted to lose a pound of weight, if you decided that you, you, know, you want to you walk to lose a pound of weight, you would have to walk 70 miles. 70 Whoa. That's how energetically efficient we are. You're um, gonna run out of the battery on your on yeah. your uh, watch. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, we just do it too well. We're too efficient at it. So, so where does that energetic, uh, you know, early in human evolution, by moving on two legs and doing it in an efficient way, as we suspect from the bones and the footprints Australopithecus was doing, it frees up some energy. 
And some of that energy may have been reallocated to brain growth. And so early um, uh, in, in, in early Australopithecus uh, doesn't have a large brain. It has a brain around the size of a chimpanzee's. But by the time of Lucy, brains have gotten about 20% bigger. And one of the mm-hmm. hypotheses that I present in the book is that, is that bipedal locomotion helped free up some of that energy because brains are so energetically expensive to grow. About 20% of our energy as adults goes to our brain. Um, so where did that energy come from? I, I think it's, it's linked to this, this form of locomotion. And one last thing that I'll mention about, about brains, uh, they get much bigger later obviously, uh, with genus Homo. Um, and with genus Homo, we also see expansion uh, uh, beyond the borders of Africa into Europe and into Asia um, and in the beginnings of a, of a cosmopolitan, global, uh, nearly global species. Um, but there's this amazing fossil Australopithecus child that was found by Zarai Alemzigid in Ethiopia. It's a two-and-a-half-year-old child. And the the sandstone filled in the cavity of the skull and made an impression of the brain. And so we can get details of the brain anatomy, at least external, um, but we can also get details of the size of the brain. And the brain was about 75% done growing um, mm. compared to the adults um, at, the, at the time this child died at the age of, of two and a half. That is exactly what we see in humans today. In chimpanzees, by the time you're two and a half years old as a chimpanzee, 90% of your brain is done growing. By the time you're three or four, it's 100%. So chimpanzees who are you know three or four years old, their brain volume-wise is done. There's still a lot of maturation to happen with the brain, but volume-wise it's done. But in humans, we don't reach full brain volume until we're seven or eight years old. And then again, lots of changes in maturation that happens, but volume-wise, seven or eight is when we reach our, our full brain size. And if you backtrack and look at a two and a half year old, it's about 75% of the adult brain volume is complete by that point. And that's what we see in Australopithecus. And so they've slowed down their brain growth. And this is a terrible idea if you're on a landscape full of predators that are, that are attacking you and eating you, natural selection would accelerate your growth. They, you'd mm. want to mature more quickly so that you could get to the reproductive phase and pass on your genes. How in the world were our ancestors able to slow down brain growth? What the researchers who worked on this, on this study uh, suggested, and I think they're absolutely right, is that um, we had a social buffer, that, that we were looking out for each other. We were, we were socially um, protecting our group uh, and that that buffer, that social buffer, is what allowed our kids at the time, you know, three million years ago, to to have slowed down brain growth, which would have been beneficial to their learning, learning how to be an Australopithecus on that that landscape. Um, a lot of that that you know neuronal development, which you know more about than than, than I would, um, happening. In, in an enriched environment over the course of many, many years, rather than just a couple as, as in a chimpanzee. And so, you know, I started off earlier talking about just the, the you know, the, the downsides of bipedalism and we're slow and we're unstable and we're on a landscape full of predators millions of years ago. How in the world did we survive? 
And and I think this, uh, amongst many other clues, uh, points to us uh, taking care of each other and and providing this social buffer. Um, and that's what allowed us to survive this really vulnerable time in our in our history. Fascinating. So let's just switch to the cultural part then. And what roles did bipedalism play in our social history? That's a, that's a fascinating question. So so everyone walks a little bit differently, and that's going to be you know impacted by our biology, by our by our anatomy, um, but it's also impacted by our culture and what we see around us. Um, humans are very good at copying uh, what we see around us, um, and so you know gates are are things that that you know we adopt as we see individuals around us. Um, and again, you know, it's affected by our, by our biology uh, as well. And so one of the really interesting things that, that I discovered in researching this book is that humans are so fine-tuned to uh, picking up on subtle differences in gait. And it's a, it's a signal. Mm. It's a signal that we are able to communicate to, to, to one another. Um, we can identify individuals by gait. And so one of the uh, anecdotes that I present in the book is that I, I um, I'm on the same college campus as, as my wife and, you know, back pre pandemic when, when, you know, we would walk across the green uh, as I'm heading for lunch or something, I, I could see her on the other side of the green and recognize her just from her walk. Um, and sure enough, it would, it would be her. Um, and so we can pick up on individuals just by the subtle differences in how they walk uh, additionally, we can also pick up on on mood. So, you know, think about somebody's slumped shoulders and slow dragging walk versus somebody who has a skip in their step. Um, you can tell that that first person is down, that second person is feeling pretty good. Um, and these signals may have had some advantage in the evolutionary past as we are, you know, looking across a landscape and seeing either members of our own species or maybe other species of hominins, because uh, not only uh, do we have evidence of, of hominins millions of years ago sharing the landscape with lots of different kinds of upright walking uh, hominins, but even Homo sapiens, even our own species, coexisted in Africa and beyond with different species of upright walkers. Uh, the one your listeners would know the best would be Neanderthals. Um, Neanderthals we know now uh, were were uh, uh, not so different from us that we couldn't have babies with them. We genetically absorbed them into our in, uh, into our, our our own gene pool uh, when our when humans um, uh, uh, interacted with with Neanderthals in, at the overlapping of, of territories. Um, but there were other populations. It was something called Homo naledi in South Africa that lived about a quarter of a million years ago. And Homo sapiens would have overlapped in time and space with Homo naledi. And Homo naledi was this incredibly surprising discovery that we made uh, a couple of years ago in South Africa of, of a relatively recent hominin, quarter of a million years old, that still had a really small brain. Um, it had long legs, but tiny joints. And it had mm. um, feet that were human-like, but not very well arched. And we suspect that it would have walked a little differently than humans do. And then the best example is um, an incredible discovery made on the island of Flores the in, in the Indonesian archipelago of a tiny little upright walking creature 
that was nicknamed the hobbit, uh, which is uh, the species name is Homo floresiensis. And it too was, was unusual in having um, body proportions like a, like a Australopithecus. It had long arms and short legs. It had huge feet, huge feet for its body size uh, and a tiny brain. And it lived up until 50,000 years ago. So Homo sapiens, we would have seen this thing. We would have, we would have bumped into it. Now it's gone now. And we can speculate on what happened. Um, and, and many have. We're not, we're not sure. We don't have any direct evidence for that interaction between Homo sapiens and Homo floresiensis. But it too would have walked differently with those giant feet and short legs. Um, I can sort of imagine it walk, walking like it, like it has snowshoes on, um, lifting its legs high and uh, to avoid tripping over its own toes. Um, mm. And so what I'm getting to here is that different species walking differently may have been uh, an important thing for humans to be able to recognize, to know whether the approaching group is your own species or not, um, to know whether the approaching group, if it is your species, consists of individuals that are happy or sad, that it consists of individuals that have just gone through conflict. Is anyone limping? Um, are they going to need help? Are they going to need care? So all of the, that information, you know, walking is, is not just a way to get from point A to point B. Um, it contains information. And a lot of that information uh, would, have been, would have been useful in the past. Uh, and then even today, um, this is information that we still uh, communicate to, to, to one another um, in, in mood, uh, in identifying individuals, but then also, you know, all these sort of, you know, cultural trends um, uh, in 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 gait, whether it be a you know a skip or think about you know Dorothy skipping down the uh, you know um, to 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 you know to to, to Oz, right? Um, or or also the the newer one, the smartphone slouch. This yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, right. You could absolutely tell from a distance, um, <laughs> if somebody's on their, on their phone, even if their back is turned, um, that slow walk, that, 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 that slouch. Um, and you know, one of the things that I, that I talk about in the book is, are, are some of the, the important, um, physical and mental benefits of walking as well. One of the surprising things that I learned was that, uh, it's been identified in the last couple of decades um, since, since I took physiology in college, uh, that muscle acts as an endocrine organ and actually can produce um, what are called myokines. And there are hundreds now that have been identified that then uh, travel throughout your body and have, um, and have uh, benefits, uh, both physical and mental benefits um, in terms of warding off disease, warding off car cardiovascular disease and stroke and, and diabetes, uh, but also uh, benefits to your uh, to to memory. Um, there are some myokines that target the amygdala. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and um, that wa walking has all of these important important benefits. Um, but back to your sorry, I have to cough again. <coughs> sorry about that. But back no, to your no original worries. back to your original question. Um, the there there I, I want to recognize. Um, just the, the 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 sort of ableist and 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 privileged um, angle that that I take and others have taken um, that I that I write in this book um, about walking. 
uh, I just had a class with my students where we talked about walking as something that is gendered. And um, in the world we live in right now, and probably into the past as well, how easy it is for a man to just go for a walk, a white man, especially. Um, Mm. All of my students were talking about, you know, getting out during a, you know, during the pandemic and going for a walk and then just having to deal with harassment and having to deal with catcalling. And, you know, I was just reading a story as well about um, a, a black man in Texas who was walking home from Walmart after the ice storm that hit Texas last week. And he was just walking home um, and he was arrested. Um, He was in the street because the sidewalk hadn't been, hadn't was icy, hadn't been plowed. And he was arrested for walking in the street. Um, You know, we can't run that experiment again, but my guess is if he was white, that wouldn't have happened. So walking also pulls in um, these other much larger, much more important, uh, issues of social justice, um, and, and, and injustice. Um, you know, we celebrate these, these lone walks that Thoreau and Darwin and, 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 and many other, you know, famous folks, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, famously would, would walk around the, the Apple campus. Um, it's, and it's usually white men. Um, and that's something that, that I think we need to, you know, I, I grapple with a little bit in the book. Um, Antonia Malchik wrote a book called A Walking Life in 2019. And for your listeners who are interested in that aspect of walking, I would recommend her book. Uh, Antonia Malchik's book is, is, is just brilliant and talks about the world we've constructed around walking um, and writes a lot more than I do about um, that, that the world we've constructed for um, mostly is, is, a, is a world for cars. And so walking itself is difficult. Uh, but even uh, in places uh, where walking is possible, we've constructed a world that's really difficult for those who don't walk. Um, and so in that way, mm. walking itself uh, is, is, you know, t- takes on this the, quite an, an ableist um, uh, connotation, I suppose. Um, it was one of the reasons in, in the subtitle of the book where I talk about, um, you know, the book's called First Steps, How Upright Walking Made Us Human. It was important to me that it was not how upright walking makes us human. Um, there are so many people who, who don't walk, and that doesn't make them in any way, shape, or form any, any less human. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do try to write about is, is that um, one of the, one of the, the, the things that, that I end the book with is a story of a fossil that I worked on that was discovered in Kenya in the 1970s. And it's an amazing fossil. Um, it's just the end of a shin bone. And yet we can learn so much about the individual who, who possessed that shin bone and, and died 2 million years ago in, in Kenya. Um, it appears to be from a young adult because it has a, 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 a somewhat open growth plate still. Um, is detectable, but but the individual is done growing. So think about somebody, you know, 18 to 20 years old. It's very small, consistent with the size of Lucy. And so we think it might have been from an osteological female, about 70 pounds. Um, definitely, definitely from a, 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 an upright walker, it has all the hallmarks of that. Um, so, uh, you know, Homo habilis or, or, or Australopithecus boisei, we have a couple of species living at that time. But the most amazing thing to me is that it has a healed ankle fracture. 
Hmm. So two million years ago, two million years ago, you are a hominin on your landscape and you break your ankle, broken ankle, right? You step into a ditch or you fall from a tree, break your ankle. There's no way you should have survived. Um, you're, you're already slow and now you've broken an ankle. Um, that should have been the end of this individual, but it wasn't. It was a healed ankle fracture. And so to me, that tells us that, that tells me that other individuals were helping this one out, got this individual into a tree, brought them food, um, brought them water, brought, whatever they needed to survive. Mm-hmm. They were buffered from, you know, because of the behavior of others, the compassion of others, the care, the empathy that, that humans, you know, as bad as we can be to each other, we also have this wonderful aspect to us that we are caring, compassionate trusting, empathetic primates. And I think that starts back with the origins of bipedalism um, and connects us right back to uh, the individuals today that um, lose a limb and, and, and can't walk and don't walk. And, and we as a society take care of them um, and provide the resources, um, or at least should uh, provide the resources that those individuals need uh, to continue to to live um, a, 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 a healthy and happy life. Yes, absolutely. And uh, you bring out absolutely crucial points that even the history of locomotion can teach us so much about social justice that we should right. uh, take uh, take a lot of, uh, uh, turn a lot of our attention to. Exactly. Yep. That's right. All right. So, um it's absolutely captivating read with very beautiful artwork, your book. And looking at your front uh, uh, cover also makes me think about uh, the x-rays of uh, those feet on high heels. So I'm sure <laughs> <Yes>. our listeners <laughs> are going to really enjoy it. So we're Great. taking up a lot of your time. And I would like to, well, I'm afraid to ask about your next project. It's probably <laughs> going to be something like astrobiogeology. <laughs> Not, not quite. Um, no, I mean, I, I, there's so many fossils that, that continue to be discovered. Uh, and there are new ones coming out of South Africa. There's some beautiful new fossils coming out, uh, even older fossils coming out of, of um, Germany, colleagues of mine, Lee Berger and Madeleine Burma. Um, and so there's a lot of work still to be done. There's so many things we still don't truly understand about the origins uh, and evolution of this of, of this unique form of locomotion. So I'm not done with bipedalism. I'm still thinking about it and mm-hmm. and and still um, and still working on it. And once once um, it is safe to do so, um, my plan is to return to Tanzania uh, to the site of Laiatoli where there are famous footprints um, and continue to search um, because on the basis of what we found back in 2019, um, my guess is there are many, many, many more uh, still to be found. Excellent. So where can our listeners find more about your work and the book as well? Uh, so my my book uh, can be found on the HarperCollins website. So if you just search for uh, Jeremy De Silva First Steps, um, you can you can find that book. Um, I also have a have a website um, where they can learn a lot more about the research I do and 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 I've got a number of educational videos that I've posted um, and that is uh, sites.dartmouth.edu slash de Silva my last name um, and uh, or just google my name and you can find that website uh, pretty 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 easily um, and and so my 
my recommendation would be to to order you know if you're interested in the book and you want to read the book uh to order it through uh your local bookstore local bookstores uh, or a local science museum um local bookstores and science museums are really struggling right now uh in the pandemic and and they could use all the help we can give them oh that's an excellent message yes all right so that has been an absolute pleasure thank you for joining me today and also i would like to thank you for opportunity to say good luck with your mammoth Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was it was a real pleasure speaking with you.